What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord from James 4, 1 through 10. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with one of my favorite stories from this summer. This is the story of Jolien Bumquo. She is on the Belgian national track team. And as you can see, her event is the shot put. She is a thrower. But a few weeks ago at the European Championships in Poland, Jolien became a runner. She competed in the 100-meter hurdles. And she had to do this because two of her teammates who would normally run that race were injured. And they learned that if they scored a zero in any of the events, they would automatically be disqualified. So they had to find someone to run the 100-meter hurdles, and Jolien said that she would do it. So some of you may have seen some of the video of her running. She's definitely not a natural hurdler. However, I would say she did better than most of us would do because she finished the race. The, the winning time, uh, she was 19 seconds behind the, the last runner to finish before her. She finished the race in 32.81 seconds. But again, as I said, she finished, and her entire team was, was able to remain in the competition. You know, another thing that I love about seeing this video and watching these images was not only the difference in her size and speed, but that she ran and jumped the whole time with a smile on her face. And you can see that in this picture. And when she got to the end, all of the other runners who competed, they congratulated her and they hugged her and they told her she did a great job because they knew she did it, not for her own individual accomplishment, but for the good of the team. And when it comes to teamwork, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to look like to be a part of a team or a community that we put the needs of others above our own and we don't run so that we might have our own individual accolades but we run together and when we do it right we make each other better in the process james as he turns here to chapter four reminds us that the quickest way for unity and teamwork in the church to crumble 
is through selfish pride. And it's not James himself who is reminding us of this, but it's the Word of God. Because this is a consistent theme we find throughout Scripture. That when it comes to the community of faith and our shared responsibility to bring glory to God and to lift each other up, there is no better way to fail at those efforts than for us to become selfish and to become prideful and to make things all about ourselves. And so what James does here as we move into chapter 4, he sort of presents these first 10 verses like a really good essay or like a really good research paper. And you'll remember from when you were in school, and many of you are, are actually doing this now in school, you were taught that if you're going to write a really good essay or a really good research paper, you need to start by getting the reader's attention, and then pretty quickly you need to establish the problem. And then you need to have some well-organized thoughts that provide a solution to the problem, that deal with the problem, hopefully in some practical ways, and then you need to drive things home with a really good conclusion. James does essentially that as he addresses directly division within the community of faith. And he begins first by establishing the problem. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on the problem this morning because James takes great care to develop how these issues can cause unity in the church to crumble but we're going to follow his line of thinking as the Lord led him to write to the solution, to the answer, and to one that finishes really strong and gives us a way forward that we might not be condemned to live in these kinds of crumbling, fractured relationships. The problem that James establishes, and remember, he's writing this letter not just to one church and not just to one small group of people, but he's writing this letter in a way that it's going to be distributed to lots of different churches. And he seems to be acknowledging as we go that, that it's expected that some of these problems are going to exist within the churches, within the communities of faith, and that they needed to be prepared, that their unity, that their love, that their relationships, that their effectiveness could crumble from the inside if they weren't aware of these potential issues or if they didn't deal with these issues as they came up. And the problem that he establishes right here at the beginning of chapter 4 is disunity, division, and disorder within the community of faith. And he says that when those things happen, when there is disunity, when there is division, when there is this sort of disorder within the community of faith, it usually results from selfishness, from pride, from sin. James begins chapter 4 with a question. And if you've been watching and noting as we've gone through this letter, James asks lots of questions. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 1 and read all the way through and count, you're going to find dozens of questions that James asks because this is a really good discipleship tool. This is a really good way to help someone think and and to help them to arrive at, at some sort of an understanding or a conclusion, to ask really good questions, and James does that throughout the letter. As a pastor, you know, I often get approached by children and by teenagers with some really hard questions about the Bible. I'm not saying adults don't have hard questions about the Bible, but children, theirs are much harder than yours, okay? And they come and ask all kinds of things that they're curious about. 
And there are some times when boys and girls come and ask me questions that I simply have nothing better to say except I'm not really sure I know the answer to that, but that's a really good question. But all of our boys and girls will tell you that I always challenge them to keep asking those questions. Don't stop. It's good. It's okay. It's a great thing to ask questions about God and to ask questions about faith. And we grow in our knowledge and understanding sometimes simply by being willing to ask questions. James begins this chapter with another good diagnostic question. What is it that causes the fights and the quarrels among you? And the word for you that James uses here, it's the plural word. And in fact, throughout these verses, James is speaking to the community in the plural. He's not just singling out one person. He's not just talking to one individual. But in each case, he's addressing all of them. You all. What is it among you all that causes fights and quarrels within the community of faith? And he answers that question with another question. Isn't it those desires that battle within you? Don't the fights and the quarrels among you come from your desires that battle within you? James has mentioned already in the letter some of the concerns he has about some of the the quarrels and the fights and the sin that might be present in some of these communities of faith. You'll remember going back to chapter 1, James talked about how they dealt with temptation and the temptation to sin. You'll remember in chapter 2, James was very concerned about favoritism in the churches. That, that there might be some who were favoring the rich over the poor. Or they were actually giving more privileges to those who had more clout as opposed to, to those who didn't have much clout. And so James was very concerned about favoritism. He's also concerned about the things they were saying. He warns them multiple times in the letter, your words matter, they can do great damage, and so whoever claims to be wise needs to learn to keep a tight rein on his tongue, a tight rein on her tongue. He's worried, as we'll see later in this chapter and into chapter 5, that not only are some of the rich being favored over the poor, but perhaps some of the rich in the churches are oppressing the poor, like they were seeing in the culture around them. There's lots of specific things that James deals with, but he brings it all back here to the root cause of the division, of the disunity, of the disorder. And he says, doesn't this ultimately come from the selfish desires that we all battle with in our soul? It's like a war that is being waged in our hearts when it comes to sin and temptation and and our selfish desires and our pride. And I think we can all relate to that. And we can all acknowledge that we know what that battle is like, and it is a fight. But James says most of the time, what's causing those things like disunity and division and disorder, it's that you're losing those battles with the selfish desires within you. Now, one of the things I want to do this morning, as we've done throughout this letter, is mention, point out the consistency between what James writes and teaches and some of the teaching and some of the writings of the other apostles. So we're going to look at some scriptures written by some other apostles. And we're going to begin with the Apostle Paul, who says here in Romans 7 something similar to what James has just acknowledged, that desire that's battling within us, that inner battle that goes on for for our soul against sin. And Paul, what he writes here in Romans 7, is essentially like a personal confession 
about his own struggles. Paul says, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, Paul writes. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Don't you love the way Paul ends this? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. James talks about this war and this battle that tends to cause those fights and quarrels inside the community of faith. And then he continues into verses 2 and 3, and, and he says, Our selfishness and our pride can lead us to not only disregard the needs of others, to disregard them, but they might even lead us to dishonor or pursue violence against them just so that we can get our own way. You desire, but you do not have, James says, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You want what you do not have, James says. And instead of asking God in the right way, you ask God with selfish motives. And then when you don't get what you want, but you see that someone else has it, you fight and you quarrel and you covet and you kill just so that you might get what you want, all with the motive to spend it on your own sinful pleasures. We all understand this fight. We all understand this struggle. But when it drives our relationships within the community of faith, the things that Christ calls us to pursue in our relationships with each other, love and unity and peace and teamwork and mutual strength, those things crumble around us as well. Back in the 1600s, there was a Jewish philosopher named Baruch de Spinoza. And Spinoza, again, he's a Jewish man, was writing about some of the, the things he thought were peculiar as he saw them within the Christian community of faith. And, and Spinoza wrote it this way. He said, I've often wondered when persons who boast of the Christian religion, namely things like love, joy, peace, patience, and charity to all, so often quarrel with each other and display such venomous animosity and daily display such bitter hatred towards each other that I've wondered if perhaps it's these attitudes rather than the virtues which they profess which actually define their faith. Even today, how confusing it is for a watching world when we as followers of Jesus claim all of these virtuous things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all of those fruit of the Spirit. And yet when that watching world sees our relationships with each other or when they see the way that we talk or the attitudes we carry and rather than seeing those fruit of the Spirit, all they see are things like anger 
and bitterness and, and, and shouting at others that they're the problem while never acknowledging our own shortcomings. And when they see Christians fighting and disagreeing and always professing these virtues, but living out something else apparently that is completely the opposite. How confusing it is for them, just as it was for this Jewish scholar all those years ago. James said this, if you'll remember back in chapter 3. He said, with our tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue we curse human beings who are made in his likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? And then he goes on to say in verse 16 of that chapter, For where you have things like envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. How confusing it is indeed to those on the outside, and how it distracts from the gospel message. When they see us praise our Lord and Heavenly Father with one side of our mouths, and then in the very next breath, curse human beings who are made in his image and when they see in our relationships the things that james is warning about quarreling and fighting and not those things which demonstrate the opposite the joy and the love and the peace that flows out of our relationship with god that ought to make us happy to be in a community of faith together and not divided a really good question for Christians to ask ourselves today is how do we continue to fight the good fight of faith without forsaking Christian virtues in our words, in our attitudes, and in our actions? If we are going to claim to be speaking by the Holy Spirit, then should it not come with the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our attitudes and in our actions? Not to say that we're never going to be angry, not to say that we're never going to find something offensive. Not to say that there aren't going to be times where we have to take a stand and we have to fight the good fight and it's going to be a fight. Yes, those things remain true. But if we are going to represent Christ faithfully in this culture, in these strange and evil days, where anger is far more common than those fruit of the Spirit that we talked about, May it be that we stand out as those who are not driven by selfish ambition and envy and hatred and anger. And, and listen to me, that aren't always filling our cup with those things. What do we think is going to overflow if all we ever fill our cup with are those things that make us more angry and make us want more division and disunity and disorder in our lives? But instead if we can be those who represent the fruit of the Spirit and, and with joy demonstrate that which Christ has done for us, what we're choosing, as James has said, is not the wisdom of the world, which is driven by our own selfish desires, but we are choosing the wisdom that comes from God, and it's the wisdom that brings life. And that's what it looks like as a community of faith to follow Jesus, not just as individuals, but to follow him together. And moving into verse 4, it really gets serious now. As James asks yet another question, but he addresses them as you adulterous people. 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. As I mentioned, there's this consistent teaching through the Holy Spirit that came from the apostles on so many of these matters. We heard from the Apostle Paul a moment ago. Now let's hear from the Apostle John and, and how the Lord led him to write words that are so similar to what we read in James chapter 4. John wrote in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What John and James said sounds similar to what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to forfeit his soul? Another consistent theme of Scripture is comparing our covenant relationship with God to the covenant relationship of marriage. James began in verse 4 by calling them adulterous people. And then in verse 5, he asks yet another question. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? When we become friends of the world instead of friends with God, James says, the Bible says, this is like spiritual adultery. And what is the worst form of spiritual adultery? It's a similar sounding word. It's idolatry. And anytime we commit idolatry, whether we are worshiping something or someone above God, or whether we are giving more of our hearts and our lives to something or someone above what we give to God, we are committing idolatry. We are worshiping an idol. And that, as, as Scripture describes, as James describes, is spiritual adultery. It is a breaking of our covenant relationship with God. And so often, the reason the Bible describes this relationship like a marriage is because we're then reminded that in our covenant relationship with God, He has been faithful completely to us. He has never broken one part of his covenant relationship with us. He has never broken his word. He has never been unfaithful to his vows, to his promise to us. But we as human beings, just as Paul said about himself, sin is always right there with us, isn't it? And, and we are tempted constantly to break that covenant relationship. So time and time again, Scripture reminds us of the value of that relationship and and the essential responsibility we have to be completely faithful that we would never worship or serve anything or anyone else above God and also that there is great benefit to that covenant relationship just like there is in our covenant relationship of marriage you know I often think about how when when I'm officiating a wedding and and couples are are going to walk into their first year their first few years of marriage they really don't realize not only how hard it's going to be, but how much they're going to appreciate their spouse if they live in a faithful relationship the longer that that marriage goes. There's going to be some ups, there's going to be some downs, but, but the longer you're married, the more you realize how great it is to have that other half, 
to have that other person who knows you better than anyone else and who is always there to remind you of some of the things you need to be reminded of. Now, I had not planned to share that this morning, but in the 8.30 service, we had a baptism. We had a wonderful baptism this morning. And after I baptized Whitney, I went back, and as I was preparing to come down, I looked at my phone, and there was a text from my wife, and I read it, and she said, make sure you fix your hair before you come back down and preach. I didn't realize it, but apparently as I baptized, I had a bunch of stray hairs sticking up, it's going to be fun to go back and watch the video later and see what I look like. As I said this in the 830 service, lots of heads were nodding like, yep, your hair was messed up. We all noticed. That's the joy of standing in front of people every Sunday. Nothing ever gets by people. That's okay. My wife was there for me, and what a blessing it is to have that relationship, especially when it's a faithful one. James says, do you think that Scripture says without reason that God longs for us. He jealously longs for the spirit that, that he placed in us to be faithful to him. This is a mystery of God, that God is blessed by our faithfulness. He doesn't just bless us. He is blessed by our faithfulness because he created us for this relationship and he longs for it to be one that is good and that is faithful and that is strong. But all of us, as James says, are, we are tempted to commit spiritual adultery, to commit idolatry. But verse 6 is a welcomed good news scripture. But he gives us more grace. Yes, we have all been guilty of breaking the covenant relationship that we have with God. But he continues to give us more grace. And I love what St. Augustine said. When it comes to grace and mercy, God gives what he demands. He demands that we, as his people, be people of grace and mercy. But what he demands from us, he gives to us in abundance. God gives us an abundance of grace and mercy. But he gives us more grace. As Paul had said in Romans 7, thanks be to God, he delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as James has done throughout his letter, he reminds us that wisdom and humility always go together. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. When we deal with the problem within the community of faith, Problems like disunity, division, disorder, usually they result from selfishness, from pride, and from sin. But James brings things home, not leaving us just with the problem, but reminding us of the answer. The answer that is consistent throughout Scripture. That when we are people who are fraught with selfishness and pride and sin, the way back to God from those things is always humility and repentance. I told you we were going to spend more time on the problem than the answer. Not because the answer is less important, but the way James presents the answer in these last four verses is simple. The way back from selfishness, pride, and sin is always humility and repentance. And what he gives us in these last verses are 10 different commands. And nine out of the 10 of these commands are all in the plural. Just like he began this section by saying you all, to you as the community of faith. 
Nine out of the ten of these commands are in the plural. He is talking to everyone in the community of faith who would hear these words. And each of these ten commands are connected to the very first one. Here's the simple answer. Here's the simple way back. Submit yourselves then to God. Everything else we find in these verses, all the other commands, they're all connected to that one. Submit yourselves then to God. To submit ourselves to God means that we acknowledge His Lordship in all things. And we acknowledge that His Lordship means we surrender ourselves to Him in obedience in all things. We daily submit ourselves then to God. This morning, the young lady who was baptized, Whitney, she said that confession out loud that we love to hear, Jesus is Lord. And that confession is not just our confession on the day that we're baptized, but it is to be the confession of our entire lives. If Jesus is Lord of all, if he is King of all, he's also the Lord of my heart and the King of my heart. Submit yourselves then to God. James says, and then continuing on in verse 7, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I love the way one translation says it. Resist the devil, and he will turn and run. I know it sounds strange, and it sounds almost impossible, but this again is a consistent teaching of Scripture that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Satan has great power, to be sure. But the power of Christ in us can overcome his power. I'm going to say that again. Satan has great power, to be sure. But the power of Christ in us can overcome that power. Better yet, through the power of Christ, Satan has already been defeated. And sin has already been defeated. And death has already been defeated. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is alive in us through the Holy Spirit. And we can resist the devil. And we can resist his many fiery darts of temptation to sin. And when we resist him through the power of Jesus Christ and in the name of Jesus Christ, he will turn and run but we can't do that if we have not submitted ourselves then to God. All of these commands come back to the first one. And James continues into verse 8, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. The verb that's used there for come near, we find most often in the Bible for someone coming to the temple and coming near to God in worship. So we can hear that the Bible telling us to come near to God in reverence and in, in worship and in respect that we, we would not enter his presence in a way that we are unholy or impure. But then James uses the same word for God drawing near to us. What does he mean by that? Surely he doesn't mean that God comes near and worships us. No, that's not what he means. What he means is because of what Christ has done for us, we are welcome to draw near to God in worship in the most personal way. He welcomes us into his personal presence, and he is present with us in a way that only he can be present 
We get to draw near to God, and then he draws near to us just as personally as he invites us to draw near to him. And he then is present with us. If you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. That God is present with us. He draws near to us in a way that no one else can do. And we know that we have met him. And we've been in his presence. If we submit ourselves to God, we resist the devil and he flees from us. We draw near to God and he draws near to us. And all the rest of these commands then, they are words of repentance. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve, be broken over your sin. Grieve, mourn, wail. And the repentance that God requires brings us back, as James has done throughout this letter, to truly godly wisdom. It leads us to humility. But James' last line, where he drives things home, comes with a beautiful promise, does it not? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He's the one who will lift you up. Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you you up wisdom and humility go together a consistent theme in the book of james but also as we've said what james writes is so consistent with what we find in the rest of the new testament we heard from the apostle paul we heard from the apostle john how i want to close this morning is i want to read from the apostle peter first peter chapter 5 I'm going to read these verses over you, and then I'm going to read the end of James 4, 7 through 10 again. And I want you to take note as I read these words from Peter and then again from James, how eerily similar they are. And consider for a moment that these two guys didn't sit down next to each other and write these letters at the same time. Nor did they write these letters to the same people. The only way that these words could be as similar as they are is that the Holy Spirit spoke to both of these men and said, these are, are the words of God that my people need to hear, not just in this situation, but for all time. And I want you to hear how what Peter writes can give us the same level of confidence that we hear from James that the way back to God is always through humility and repentance. And when we walk that path, he will lift us up. Get yourself in your best listening posture, okay? Your best receiving posture. And simply hear these two passages of scripture that I'm going to close with this morning. From 1 Peter 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And the words of James. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you give us more grace. When it comes to grace and mercy, you give what you demand in abundance. We thank you, God, our Father, that you have delivered us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that we are no longer condemned to sin and death. We are no longer condemned to disorder and to every evil practice. We are no longer condemned to quarreling and to fighting, but through you, our Lord, we have deliverance. We have forgiveness. We have life. We have the wisdom that comes from above to lead us that we might walk faithfully on the path that you have laid out for us. Lord, we thank you that we are not condemned to sin and death because of Jesus Christ and the cross and the empty tomb and that we share in your victory over those things. And Lord, I pray today that you would fill us with your powerful spirit. And Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear that we would have the wisdom from above that's driving us forward. And Lord, today, would you draw us to yourself? Would you draw that person to you today who needs to submit to you, submit their life to you for the first time? Would you draw that person to you today who needs to return to you, to take that path of humility and repentance to come back to you. And Lord, would you fill this place in our last moments together with your joy and with your peace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.